Turn with me to Psalm 119. We'll begin in verse 105. It's a lot of verses in the 119th Psalm. We're do a little bit different this morning. Uh, we have been trying to teach on the doctrine of confession, which I want to get back to eventually. We had so far covered it with the doctrine of confession that the Old Testament teaches us, number one, to confess our sin, number two, to confess our testimony, and number three, to be a man or woman of our word. Keep our word. When you confess something and say you're going to do it, you do it, even if it hurts you. Now, of course, if it's sinful, you don't do it, but it can hurt you without it being sinful, like owing somebody money or having a prior commitment. You don't throw away the prior commitment because a better one comes along. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. Don't do it to them. That kind of falls in line with the golden rule. Uh, anyway, so we'll come back to it because I want to start teaching on blessing and cursing. We need to have a better understanding of that than we do and uh, understand the first person the first person or thing to bless and curse in the Bible is God, and we still maintain that ability to bless and curse. Mostly what we do is bless ourselves and then curse ourselves. And uh, we should clean that up a little bit. We'll, we'll discuss that maybe come first of the year. What I want to, uh, I guess, prepare us to do today is we're coming to the end of the year. And our culture kind of prepares us for a fresh start, though we don't maybe in this church necessarily hold the doctrine of New Year's resolutions because now faith is. So if the Lord speaks to you to repent, you don't wait till January 1st to make changes. But at the same time, I understand there is a cultural momentum we can harness in us as Americans, mostly in here, we have a lot of internationals in our church, but mostly Americans here, as we're approaching the end of the year, we can harness this cultural phenomena and, and look to prepare the new year to tackle things. We also understand that with our holidays, things are not normal for the next two weeks. A lot of parties and school functions and travel and spending of money and eating of food, everything is just out the window as far as the regular year. So maybe we can say a few things to gear our heart up to tackling the first of the year. Furthermore, a lot of churches in our nation and around the world, when the new year hits, they'll spend the whole month or, or 30 days or 21 days in prayer and fasting. So we're going to do that this year, not because the Holy Spirit says so, but because my friend Pastor Steve Taboo said, we're doing it, trying to get as many churches involved as possible. And his mindset was, imagine if every church in town would pray and fast the same era or area for the new year to be better churches, to be better Christians. And I said, Pastor Steve, we're with you. Write me down. And I think he's even wanting to produce like a little video that will blast out on social media and all the pastors who are partaking, maybe to put some good peer pressure on the other churches. I don't know. It's still middle school even in the ministry. I just want to be honest with you. So be prepared for that. We'll start, uh, I think, January 7th. So it's 21 days. It'll take us to the 8th. 21 days of prayer and fasting. We all already pray a lot around here, but the fasting may be something you want to throw in the mix. And I don't teach simply to fast food because for some of you, food's not an issue. Some of you don't eat enough as it is. So uh, some of you, because you work so hard on your job, you could go a whole day without eating and not even realize it. Just drink two cups of coffee and go, go, go. Others of you to fast food would be a hard thing. So we'll, we'll kind of teach a little bit more, but fast something that is pleasant to you. Fast an attraction. My pastor's doctrine says to fast your attractions so they don't become distractions. So pick something. According to Isaiah, you fast to afflict your soul. Some of you could skip food and it wouldn't afflict your soul at all. Others of you, if you think about maybe not having lunch today, your soul is already in mourning and sackcloth and ashes and you're preparing the wake 
for the sorrow that is I'm not going to miss lunch. But maybe it's video games, maybe it's social media, maybe it's sports, maybe it's a tradition, maybe you want to finish out some hunting this year and you don't. Pick something that is an affliction to your soul and do it for 21 days. Abstain from it for 21 days. Whatever disciplines your soul and stretches your being, that's what you do. Video games, social media. I'm probably going to fast news on my phone and probably fast my phone, period, except to do my research and texting. I only have one email on my phone, and I don't use it much at all. So that will be hard for me because I live on this thing, researching, newsing. That's my thing. I don't do social media, never have. Well, that's not true. I did Instagram for two years and posted missionary pictures, but that's not my thing. I'm, I'm already knowing it's going to be hard not to know what's going on in the world because it's the end of the world. You want to know what's going on. But I, I, some of you will squawk to me and, and give me info. Anyway, prepare for that. Fasting, 21 days prayer and fasting. Uh, some of you maybe will pray for the first time 21 days in a row ever. And that'll be good for you. And maybe it'll stick. And once we come out of it, you'll continue to pray. But what I want to talk today about is troubleshooting why some of us, maybe all of us, still battle the same issues. This is a message I've taught a hundred times. We're going to come at it from a different angle. These are personal battles, maybe personal sins. We have what we call familiar sins. These are the sins that are familiar to you and you alone or me and me alone. My familiar sins aren't yours, just like your familiar sins aren't mine. For one person, it might be they really struggle with eating. Another person might be porn. Another person might be cigarettes. Another person is anger management. I want to talk this morning about really getting our hearts set to attack what God has called us to attack. It is possible to march forward and get a little bit of victory in life and never really deal with the thing causing you issues. And so I I think I called this finding the proper assignment. It's possible to stay busy about many things and never fix the thing that needs to be fixed. And yet the thing that needs to be fixed is the thing that brings you insecurity. It's the thing that when it flares up, you fall down and say, oh God, why this again? Have mercy on me. And what we find is we are better at some things than others, and so we want to major on our strengths and totally ignore our weaknesses. And that works for a season until your strengths uh, are hindered by your weaknesses because your weaknesses grow so big, they've been neglected for so long, that right when you jump out again to do your strength, your weakness sweeps your legs out from underneath you. And eventually what happens in the Christian life is the enemy, because he is our accuser and our surveyor, He knows what that familiar weakness is. And right when he sees you leap again for the trapeze, that's going to be your strength. He comes along and just kicks your legs right when you go to post and launch just to watch you plummet. He masters us because he's a familiar spirit. He's familiar with us. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. So what we have to prepare to do, what I want to challenge us as a congregation to do, as we're wrapping up this year, marching into the next, I want us to take inventory, though we already probably know it. What is that thing we keep circling? We, we, we circle this topic like the Israelites circle in the mountain. This is a message we circle. I circle because you circle. If you're as dizzy as I am, stop. Let's just go on into the promised land and find something else to fight. By now you'd think we'd learn how to master this thing, myself included. As a kid, even now, you know, you play video games, you got a boss level, 
And you keep throwing yourself at that boss over and over again in a video game until you figure out how to beat the boss. And once you beat the boss, you move on. Whatever this boss level is in our life, it's time to beat it. In some video games, pardon the dumb analogy, you can stop at the boss level and go master the other levels 100% them, but you still haven't advanced in the game. You can know the rest of the game up until that point, like the back of your hand, gathered every tool, every weapon, every utensil, every secret coin, secret scroll, secret one-up, secret armor, mastered it, but you still haven't moved on. And that can be our life spiritually. We've mastered everything up until this point, but this one thing, and this is the gatekeeper. So I want us to adjust our mindset to say this is what we're going to tackle in 2023. Who cares about anything else? Who cares about what we want to master if it isn't what God wants us to master? And so this really becomes a a criticism of our own Christian walk. What are we still failing at? Why are we still failing there? Why does the devil still have that number and he can still call it and we still pick up? Why do we still answer that thing? Why don't we know his voice by now and just tell him to go to hell? Why are we still battling and failing at this thing? So Psalm 119, 105, I'm going to read this whole little section here. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So part of our solution as we're trying to tackle, we're calling it the proper assignment. The word of God is going to be the key. This is a common sense, a duh moment. But sometimes we forget our answers in the word. When you're under attack, your training must kick in. If you don't have any training, you get owned. At some point, you realize, I have a lot of head knowledge, but not a little application or training experience. Your training has to kick in. Your training has to kick in. And that has to be the Word of God. If we're going to march forward, then only the Word of God can be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That has to be the thing we rely upon. We don't need to keep asking for more wisdom. We have it. We don't need to keep asking for, what should I do now? You know what to do. We all know what to do. Whatever our situation is, we know what to do. We have our little personal in-house doctrine of practice of taking an index card, writing five scriptures on it that adjust the problem we're facing. Are we actually doing that? Or do we just have an index card? Some people, they have scriptures posted all over every mirror and refrigerator in their house. And now it's just decor. It's the motivational poster. You don't even remember what it says. You just walk past it. It's almost superstitious. You just touch it. Mm, like that's going to do something for you. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall. What are these scriptures up here for? I forgot what I was trying to beat. The word has to be first and foremost. Verse 106. I have sworn and I will perform it. So there it comes back to our doctrine of confession. I've made my vow. God, I swear I'm beating that this year. God, I swear I'm over this. I know it's hard for us as Southerners to hear the word swear. It's not a cuss word. But what we're saying is, Lord, I promise you, I swear to you. Let your yes be yes and your no be both, but your no, but let's, uh, let's keep it in context here. I will keep your righteous judgments. What, will I, what have I sworn? What will I perform? To keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. That's probably because we're not beating this thing. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto your word. Accept, I beseech thee, the freewill offerings of my mouth. A lot of talking about the mouth here. 
Receive or accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. Now, if you hadn't noticed this by now or before, let me point out something really cool to you. Psalm 119 is 140 plus verses long, and every verse mentions the Word of God in some form or fashion. Precepts, judgments, statutes, commandments, law, word, etc. Every verse has a reference to the law of God, the Word of God, which tells us what our foundation and our answer is anywhere we go. It's the Word of God. Teach me your judgments. Verse 109, I like it best in the King James. My soul is continually in my hand. Modern translation says, New Living Translation says, my life hangs in the balance. I don't like that. I think NASB says, my life is in my hand. I don't like that. It's soul. Because if you say my life, well, what is all that? But when we say specifically the Hebrew word soul, we know exactly how to apply that doctrinally. My soul is in my hand, which means if we're crazy, that's our fault. If we're terrified, that's our fault. If we're squirrely surely, that's our fault. If we're too prideful, that's our fault. We can control this. We get offended, that's our fault. We get angry, that's our fault. This verse right here says, my soul is forever and always in my hand. You just make me so mad. Pastor Vaughn would say, nope, mad was already in you. Pastor Vaughn would have said, if I can put mad in you, then I can put glad in you. And I would much rather put glad in you, but ain't no glad coming out because there's none in you. So we have to stop this petty blame shifting. Well, they just make me so mad. No, you're an irritable, irritable, miserable, immature wretch to begin with, and they just bumped you. You were unstable to begin with. They just knocked you. Your soul, my soul is in my hand. I don't have to get offended. I don't have to be moody. I don't have to be rude. I don't have to be fearful. It's mine to control. This is one of our core tenets of this church from the Word of God. Your heart is your stewardship. You must renew your mind. You must submit your will. You must subject your emotions. Your soul is in your hand to do with as God commands or what mama wants you to do. Grow up or keep circling the mountain. Beating whatever mountain is before us begins with holding your soul in your hand and steering it as God's word commands. This is the great lie of the modern homosexual movement. Well, love is love, and who am I to forbid you from loving who you want to love? The Bible commands us who to love. The Bible commands us who to hate. The Bible commands us what to appreciate. The Bible commands us what to detest. We control what we love. Well, we fell out of love. No, you didn't. You chose perversion. You didn't nourish the love that you once had. You didn't nourish that marriage. You didn't feed that marriage. No, you allowed the devil to come in and steal your soul and reinvest it in some whore. You didn't fall out of love. Well, we just grew apart. That's honest. We grew apart. Yes, you did. So grow back together, dummy. We grew apart. Oh, bonsai. Grow your bonsai tree back together. (laughs) Take those little wires and... Grow up back together, dummy. Quit using it. It's so hard. It's such a little weak society anymore. <laughs> I got offended. They make me so mad. They offended me. They, said, they told Jesus, don't you know you offended them? You know what the Lord's answer to offense was? Leave them alone. I would say, because you can't help offended people. Then he said, any tree that my father hasn't planted shall be rooted out and destroyed. So you keep living in offense. We're going to find you in the Gospels where the Lord says, leave them alone. My, my Father will destroy them later. 
How about that for stay away from being offended? You and I control offense. It doesn't mean things aren't offensive. I find most of my government heavily offensive. I find most of the preachers in the land heavily offensive, but I'm not going to live in offense towards them. I find academia pretty offensive. I find the media offensive. I find wokery offensive, but I don't live in offense. I've got too much to do to worship at that altar. Let's keep reading. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forget thy law. So I control how much of the law I know and how much I forget. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not erred. Have I erred not from your precepts? Your testimonies have I taken as a heritage forever. Your testimonies, Lord, not my family's. Your testimonies, not my past. Your testimonies, not my legacy, not my genealogy, not my people. Your testimonies, that's my heritage. We must realize God's testimonies are our heritage. We want the testimonies of God. For they are the rejoicing of my heart. Well, not everybody rejoices in the testimonies of God. Some people build themselves up on their past successes in the world. They're still hung up on who they used to be, where they came from, etc. I have inclined my heart. That means you're in control. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes always, even until the end. This section here, Psalm 119, verse 105 to 112, gives us such a blueprint for how to beat things in our life. Because we're talking about finding the, the proper assignment for 2023. It is proper, or it is, excuse me, not proper. It's possible to attack and change and go after something God doesn't want you to. And therefore, you waste a year and time and money trying to fix or grow something God says that's not for you to touch. Sometimes our heart gets hung up with it. We do it with the best of intentions. But the Lord says, I'd rather you do this than this. I'd rather you fix this than this. I appreciate that. I never ask you to do that. There are good ideas and then there are God ideas. And just because you can back it up with Scripture doesn't mean it's the time or the season to do it. So go with me to Proverbs chapter 4 real quick. Let's look at something there. With, with Psalm 119, 105 in mind, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light on my path. Let's see what Proverbs 4 says, because this describes what our testimony ought to be. And we're not all there. And I don't say that to, to condemn, to belittle, to berate. I say that as infor- information to inform. I say that to locate so we can figure out what we need to do going into the new year and change. Psalm, I'm sorry, Proverbs 4, verse 18. The path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. So his lamp is a light unto our path. His word is a light unto our path. If we're walking in that light, if the word of God and the doctrines we know from the scripture, the doctrines that we're convinced of and have been proven, if they're truly the light of our life, then our life ought to be verse 18. Our life ought to be shining brighter and brighter until maturity. So here's how we judge ourselves in this moment right now. Can we say our life, our marriage, our health, our career, our essence, however you want to label it, is it getting brighter and brighter? Or have we brought the lightage up to a certain point and then we just kind of status quo and then we're kind of breaking off? With the caving I do, I have been an avid caver since 
1995. And so that has allowed me to follow the technology of caving lights. And probably you're not surprised if you study the history of caving, it began with torches and prehistoric people. They, they're called, they were artists, I guess. They're cave paintings. So the early lights were torches. I have a, a caving acquaintance. I wouldn't call him a friend. They have found a new cave, which is very, very top secret. I can't even tell you where it's at. They've got uh, 30, 40 miles already mapped. Brand new cave. There's talk it might rival Mammoth. And they are very, 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 very deep. And they began to find the remains of ancient torches and the markings on the, on the ceiling where they would hit, hit the torch to knock it off and keep it burning. And then they came across the remains of the Indians who got so far back in there and couldn't get out and succumbed. So they, the rumor right now, the paper hasn't been written, is that they're suspecting it may be the first or the deepest find of paleo caving with the, the deepest recovery of remains. Anyway, pretty cool science stuff. You could probably guess that we don't cave with torches today. And our technology keeps getting brighter and brighter and brighter and smaller and smaller and smaller. So that 20 years ago, my most expensive caving light was 450 bucks and it produced 200 lumens, which is a measure of lightage output. Now my caving light's 100 bucks and it's 1,100 lumens. So the price has gone down and the light has gone up. And now you can buy 3,000 lumens for 100 bucks. And 3,000 lumens is more than what you ever need to play with. 1,000 lumens you can put on your hand and see your bones through it. It's very hot, but don't, you can do it anyway. Put it through your fingers. You can, honestly, 1,000 lumens, you can put it on the back of your hand. You can see the bones. You can see veins, especially through your fingers. Is your life improving? Or are you still walking with God with a prehistoric torch? You see that flip coming? Because by this point in Christ, you ought to be 3,000 lumens. Not some torch you have to keep snubbing on the roof to knock the ash off to keep it going. Has your walk with Christ and your grasp of the Scripture and your mastery of self, has it caused your lumen output to increase? Or are you still with the old halogen bulbs that have the circular concentric rings and horrible? Has your path been as the shining light that shineth more and more into the perfect day, growing brighter and brighter and brighter? Let me look at this in a modern translation, see what it says. Because I think this is a very convicting passage for us. If we're going to attack the new year, we get brighter by beating the thing in our way. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. You get born again, the day has dawned on your Christian walk. You're a baby Christian. You have fears, insecurities, and ignorance. But as the sun rises, the shadows disappear. Are you walking in light? Or are we still walking in shadows? Are you still struggling with the same thing you always have? Or are you mastering it? New Living Translation says, The way of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, which shines ever brighter until the full light of day. I like that one. Are you walking in the full light of day, or are we still struggling? I have a note here where I said, uh, the path of the just. It doesn't say the path of those 
doing just enough. That defines religious Christianity, doing just enough, reading just enough Bible, praying just enough, showing up to church just enough, forgiving just enough. Why are we not pioneering a greater walk with God? I don't understand electricity or lights and all that, but I'm thankful somebody out there is pushing the envelope for cave lighting because it's cheaper and better and it makes for a better experience. I'm glad they're doing it. I benefit. If you would do it, somebody else would benefit. But some of us have gotten born again and uh, we're still walking in the early dawn of our Christianity. We hadn't grown. We're still babes in Christ. And that's not proper. Verse 19 says, The way of the wickedness is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. So let's ask this question. Are we struggling to figure out why we can't advance? Are we struggling to figure out why can't I advance? Why, why, why am I still stuck here? If you say yes, verse 19 says it may be because you're in the way of wickedness. The way of the wickedness is as darkness. They don't know what they stumble at. You're trying to figure out why can't I advance? Why can't I go anywhere? Why am I still hovering this mountain? By that confession, you're qualifying and placing yourself in verse 19. Only wickedness keeps you from knowing what you stumble at. If you do know what you stumble at, we're not free. we got to deal with it. Amen. Lydia tripped last night, kind of fell, so she gets up to see what she tripped at. It was my shoes, my dress shoes. She said, Daddy, I just tripped on your shoes. And I said, then move them. I'm laying down. I'm not getting up. I'm on this couch. Why'd you trip over? Well, she was dragging a big blanket everywhere, so you, you can't see where you walk when you got a big blanket. If you do know what you're tripping at, why don't you do something about it? Amen. Fix it. We're talking about finding the proper assignment for 2023. We all have dreams and ambitions of things we want to do better, but why not fix the things that are hindering us today? Why not fix that? Now let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's principalize this. Let's go to let's go to First Chronicles. Let's look at this in the life of David. First Chronicles. We're going to read a lot of scripture here, so just stay with me. You can find the same story in Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. They are very similar. There's a couple of details that. Are, overlap and some that are left out. But First Chronicles chapter 17, here's the story of David. He's king. The king of Assyria has built him a massive palace of cedar. King Hiram of Tyre has built him this amazing palace as a coronation gift. Pretty cool. You become king, another king builds you a mansion. I became pastor. We still rented a three-bedroom college apartment. Nothing happened the day I became pastor. I just had to mix my own sound. Still waiting for that mansion, I think. <laughs> so he's got this mansion, 1 Chronicles 17, 1. Now it came to pass as David sat in his house. That's a reference to the mansion. That David said to Nathan the prophet, I'm glad he's hanging out with preachers. Notice it doesn't say a bunch of perverts hanging out in his mansion. They're hanging out in his mansion. He's talking with the prophet. That's a good place to be. He said, Nathan, lo, or look here, look around you. 
I dwell in a house of cedars. That means we would say probably a, a marble palace. I dwell in a marble palace. Let's just modernize it a little bit. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord remains under curtains. I live in a palace. God lives in a tent. It bugs them. I live in a palace. God lives in a tent. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. So if you know your Bible story, you know where this is going. David's going to build him a God awesome house. I didn't build my mansion, so I can take my resources and build God a house. Sounds like a wonderful idea. David's heart is right. David's heart is clean and pure. Even the prophet says, that sounds good to me. Do, do what you want. Do what's in your heart to do. Because God's with you. At this point, David is completely unstoppable. He has been like the day dawning and growing brighter and brighter until the perfect day. He is on this meteoric rise of influence and anointing and power and dominion. So Nathan's like, hey, man, if this is the next thing in your heart to do, everything else you want to do works, let's do it. Verse 3, and it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan. So even though he's hanging out with the prophet, the prophet wasn't manifesting the prophet's office while the two of them are fellowshipping. So let me pause here and kind of help you with me. Well, Pastor, you said you felt good about it. Yeah. And then I went home and God spoke to me. Why did you change your mind, Pastor? I didn't change my mind. When you told me what you wanted to do, I felt good about it. I didn't see any sin in it. And then I went home and I was praying with my wife, and God spoke to me about what you talked to me about, and the Lord says, that's not right. Well, you're just double-minded, Pastor. I know. I said, hey, man, sounds good to me. And then God said, yeah, but what about me? So I want you to understand how the pastor's office works. I'm not a prophet, never claim to be, but we both hear from God to help God's people. So here Nathan says, hey, do it. And then God says, Wrong. The word of, the God, of God came to Nathan saying, Go and tell David my servant, thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. Well, Nathan just said, Do it. So now Nathan's got to come back and say, Okay, God says no. Just want you to see, sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. And just because it's in your heart to do for God, doesn't mean God wants you to do it. So hear that again. Just because something's in your heart to do for God, doesn't mean God wants you to do it. It may be he has a different assignment for you. David's heart was pure. It bugged David. He was a shepherd's boy. I'm sure this mansion is more than he can handle. It's overwhelming to him. Before the mansion, he's living in holes and, and, and caves and strongholds. He's been a man on the run for years. He's had a very tumultuous, trauma-filled upbringing. And now he has peace and he's living in this mansion and it bugs him. It's not right. And he gets a little bit ahead of himself. And God says, that's awesome, but it's not what I want you to do. We have to slow down and figure out what is our assignment. Just because something needs to be fixed doesn't mean we're the one to fix it. Could be we have another assignment God wants us to have. So this is why we do need leadership in our life to be able to troubleshoot, to be able to look and say, hey, that thing sounded awesome, but I don't see it happening. Consider, you're right, it needs to be done. I'm not sure you're the person for it. Let's pray about this a little bit longer. That way we don't waste time going in the wrong direction. Verse 5, God gives his reason. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day. God says, you know what? I've not needed a house yet. Why start today? But I 
but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. And that lets us know that the tabernacle would wear out and they would have to make another one. Wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedars? It's like, have I ever complained about this yet? Now therefore thus uh, thou shalt... Uh, thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. Point there. He comes from poverty, but he was faithful. Now he's the king living in wealth. He learned how to lead by being under authority. You don't get to skip ahead in life. And I've been with you, David, wherever you've gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And have made you a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Also, I will ordain a place for my people Israel and will plant them. And they shall dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more as at the beginning. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee a house and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers and I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons and I will establish his kingdom. And he goes on to say, he shall be, build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. I will not take mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee, but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words and according to all this vision, did, so did Nathan speak unto David. So we see the, the issue here. David's got a good idea. He has a, a, there's a problem he wants to fix, but God says, this is not your problem. So let's take inventory of that in our life. Could be we're trying to stay so busy as to avoid the problem that needs fixing. Now, we're not going to go have to build a house for God. We're not going to have to go fight Philistines. But it's easy, and what I want us to see from this passage, that even someone as great as David and this anointed prophet, Nathan, they didn't see anything, any problem with this grand building project until the Lord said, that's great. It's not what I have for you. So what I want us to hear this morning is we need to slow down and figure out what does God want us to fix. Now, the Lord also begins to throw some, some prophetic foresight to David. He says a couple words here that I've underlined in my own Bible from my own study, but he says, I've always defeated your enemies. All right? And he said, but I'm going to bring Israel to a place where they no longer have enemies. And then he says again, and I'm going to defeat your enemies. And I'm going to give you a son, and he will build me a house. And from those words, David begins to get the picture. I'm not to build a house. That's not my thing. What is David's thing? I'm good at killing bad guys. Now, here's the thing where selfish, selfishness has to be aborted. If David doesn't do his assignment, he leaves a horrible legacy to his children. If he doesn't defeat the Philistines, Solomon can't finish his race. Now, think about yourself individually. What kind of sin did your parents leave you to inherit? What kind of insecurity? What kind of ignorance? What kind of shame? Maybe they were Christians. Maybe they weren't. Think about the whole industry of therapy and psychology. 
One person told me, I listened to your childhood stories. I had to get therapy. And I wanted to say, well, if you had to get therapy listening to my stories, think about what I need having lived them. Therapists and counselors, and I'm not against them at all, there's a whole industry helping people cope with their parents' inheritance. The prophet Nathan says, you're good at killing bad guys. My people have always had them. You're really good at killing bad guys. I'm going to give you a son. He's going to build my house. I will establish it. David's no fool. He doesn't say, what are you saying, Lord? What are you trying to say, Lord? David's not an idiot. He recognizes he has something better to do than build a house. It's better because it's his assignment. Both are important. We often fall in love with somebody else's assignment because it's more interesting than what we think ours is. And what happens is we neglect the thing God wants us to deal with. My wife and I are believing God for some healing on stuff. And what was funny is about three or four months ago, as we're seeking God for healing, he starts dealing with us about marriage. And I think we have a great marriage, but I think, all right, Lord, we're talking to you about healing. You keep talking to us about marriage. You know healing's important, but apparently you see stuff we don't. So let's deal with what you're dealing with. The wise man says, oh, God, you speak. I'll listen. We got to stop being word of faith nut jobs who command God to bless stupid. What we ought to say is, Lord, what do you want? Lord, what is your assignment for my life? Lord, why did you make me? What am I created for and how am I to please you? And that becomes our purpose in life. David wanted to build a house. Nathan said it's okay till God said it's not okay. I have a different assignment for him. And David had to find the proper assignment for that year. Verse 16, because we're going to read a couple more verses. Stick with me. David the king came. He, he receives this massive prophetic word. And he doesn't say, that's wonderful, awesome, hurrah. He goes and spends time in the presence of God. Let's talk about this now, Lord. And David sits in the presence of the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hither to? And yet this was a small thing in the eye, thine eyes, O God, but thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What can David speak more to thee for the honor of thy servant? For thou knowest thy servant. O Lord, for thy servant's sake and according to thy own heart hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what nation is in the earth is like unto your people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his own uh, people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness by driving out nations from before thy people whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt. For thy people Israel didst thou make thine own people forever, and thou, Lord, becamest their God. Therefore now, Lord, let the thing that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as thou hast said. Let it even be established that thy name might be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And let the house of David, thy servant, be established before thee. Now, let's pause here because he's saying, Lord, you prophesied you're going to make me a great house. You prophesied you're going to make me a great house. Make me a great house. And yet it seems like all we have to do is pray and believe we receive. But that's not how this works. He's praying and receiving the promises, but he also realizes what his assignment is. You're good at killing bad guys. My people have always had them. You're good at killing bad guys. That's what it says there, verses 8, 9, 10. And I'm going to give you a son. I'll establish him. He'll build the house you want to build. And you're good at killing bad guys, and my people have bad guys. So David's praying, establish my house, establish my house, establish my house. Verse 25, for thou, 
Oh my God, has told thy servant, thou wilt build him a house. Therefore thy servant hath found in his heart to pray before thee. And now, Lord, thou art God, and hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now, therefore, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may be before thee forever. For thou blessest, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. So David is reminding God, you said you would do this. And anytime God gives you an assignment, there's always a blessing attached to it. And you can claim that blessing, but you better figure out what the assignment is. Chapter 18, verse 1. And now after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines. He had stopped prior to this because he was doing other things and had a momentum to his back. And there's a coronation to be had. There's an ark to bring in. There's a a mansion being built. And he had postponed the very thing he was the most anointed to do from the moment everybody recognized this is going to be the king. How do they know he's going to be the king? He's the boy that kills the Philistines. This is the king. He had somehow lost track of his grace. He lost track of his assignment. He lost track of what his purpose was in the kingdom and got distracted with other things that were blessed for a season. And now in this off season, he's going to take another project that's one further step out of the will of God. And the mercy of God speaks up and says, that's great. It's going to be done. It's not your problem. Well, what should I do? You're good at killing bad guys. And my people have some. So the Lord, or David prays to the Lord, and the next record is, and David goes back to killing the bad guys. He found the proper assignment. Because here's the deal. If the Philistines are left untouched, the temple doesn't get built. Solomon inherits David's laziness. Solomon inherits David's delusion. Solomon will inherit David's grandeur deception. If David stays in his lane and does everything he's called to, then the generations perpetuate. The house of David is established. If you and I don't stay in our lane, if we don't figure out what we're called to do, if we don't clean up our messes, we give them to our children to clean up. And there's no reason my kids should clean up my grandfather's mess. Everybody has a mess. We always leave a little bit of one to our kids. There's no reason my kids should have my stupid in them. Amen. But that requires us to kill the Philistines that we're called to kill, that our children might go build a greater house for God than we could. So let's keep reading because this is fun. Let me, actually, let me read you out of 2 Samuel because the first thing he does is go and take the capital city, uh, which is a fun word to pronounce, Mega, Mega Hadoth or something like that. What a way to totally destroy uh, Methagama. David took, this is 2 Samuel 8, one. you don't have to turn there. It's the same chronicle, just details are omitted. David went, and the first thing he did was took Methagama. That's the capital city of Philistia. Go and ransack Paris. Go ransack Moscow. Ransack D.C. Break them. David comes out of his prayer time and says, all right, I see it. Time to recalibrate. What's my assignment? Let's obliterate the Philistines. I can do this. I was doing this as a 13-year-old when I didn't have any weapons but a sling and a stone. I can hear him just whistle. Boys, new plan. And you know, the guy's like, oh, man, they got this bow and arrow I've been wanting to practice with. And you can see him like, thank you, king. We've been waiting for this. You trained all of us up. We hadn't killed anybody in like three years. They've been harassing our territory. He goes, takes Methagama, subdued them. He took Gath. That's where Goliath was from. 
and her towns out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. Now, you go from spending money to now money's coming to you. And David smote uh, Hadarezer, king of Zobah, unto Hamath, and he went to establish his dominion as he went to establish his dominion by the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 footmen. David also uh, hoed out the chariots, uh, all the chariot horses, and reserved of them a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadarezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians 20,000, 22,000 men. So it's a party. It is a festival of bloodshed. And had David focused his energies on the wrong assignment, he would never be this successful with what needed to be done. Sure, he could start an architectural plan. It's not his grace. It's not his assignment. But when he gets back in line with what God has commanded him to do, it just starts prospering on every hand. This doesn't mean you go pick a fight with your neighbor, please. This doesn't mean you go put your mother-in-law in her place. This means you principalize it. You find out what's that thing God has graced you to do. What's the thing he's told you to beat over and over and over and over and over again because you're wasting your breath, your life, and your resources chasing things he's not assigned to you. Because probably you're a Martha, Martha, and it's just easier to stay busy than actually spend time with Christ. Let's get back in vain with what God has assigned us to do because there are Syrians that need to be defeated. There are Gittites that need to be defeated. There are Philistines that are threatening our legacy. And we're the ones that must take them. If we don't, we hand the Philistines and the Syrians and we hand Gittites to our kids. And they're going to say, well, thanks for the money. I didn't want the money. I wanted freedom. So he takes out Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria, Damascus. And the Syrians became David's servants and brought gifts. There's more money coming in. David's not after money. He's after obedience, but he sticks to the plan of God and money starts pouring into the treasury, which the, the Bible is about to tell us. He then moves to the building department, which was what his vision was in the first place. I want to build you a house. That's great. Kill these bad guys. Why? Because the wealth of the wicked is laid up for my treasury. They start bringing in all these gifts. Thus, Dave, uh, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hedarezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Likewise, from Tibhath and from Chun, uh, cities of Hadarezer, brought David very much brass, wherewith Solomon made the brazen sea and the pillars and the vessels of brass. This brass becomes part of Solomon's temple. Solomon wouldn't have had the opportunity to fight all those guys because Solomon was a soft man. He wasn't a man of war. He's a kid brought up in a mansion. He's not brought up in strongholds and hedges and thickets running for his life. He's a politician. He's a dainty fellow. He's not a man of war. He would have never been able to come up with this brass, which later when Nebuchadnezzar destroys those brass pillars, the Bible says they could not even measure how much it was. There's no way to know. They had to chop it into pieces and haul the brass to Babylon. Let's keep reading. Now, when Tou, king of Hamath, heard how David had smitten all the host of Hadarezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadoram, his son, to King David to inquire of his welfare and to congratulate him because he had fought against Hadarezer and smitten him, for Hadarezer had war with Tou. And with him all manner of vessels of gold and silver and brass. So now more wealth pours in as congratulatory. Hey, David, thank you for killing my enemy. Here's some money. 
vessels of gold and silver. Them also King David dedicated unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he brought from all these nations, from Edom and from Moab and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines and from uh, Amalek. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zerah, slew of the Edomites in the valley of Salt, 8,000. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. Though, uh, thus the Lord preserved David wherever he went. David much more easily wages war on every surrounding enemy. Puts them under bondage. They become his servants. They pay taxes to him. He enslaves their warriors. Solomon's temple was built with slaves. Probably these men here. David's heart was to build this magnificent temple. He had a great vision, but not the grace. But everything he was graced to do that God blessed was necessary to make provision for the vision David had. In fact, we even know that the Bible says that David got the vision for the temple in the spirit, the blueprint. He said, I got the blueprint, the pattern in the spirit. David could see the whole thing and he's zealous. He wants to jumpstart it. But God says, there's much more work to do before we can ever break ground. Do what I've called you to do. That will establish your son and be able to build the temple you want. And we see from this passage, all these enemies that needed to be de destroyed, they became the working class. They became the, the financiers. The plan of God, when obeyed, blesses generations to come. When you and I get drunk chasing this American dream, we get drunk chasing our little college degrees and whatever career we think we want, not what God wants. Get the degree, make sure it's God's degree. Get the career, make sure it's God's career. But when we get drunk chasing the American dream, we hinder building the house of God, something great. That's why we're calling this message, Finding the Proper Assignment. Maybe you want to do something great. What if the Scudders wanted to be missionaries, but their marriage was a mess? Before you can be missionaries, fix your marriage. Maybe the Gertz want to start a business, but their finances are a mess. You can't start a business when your finances stink. What if I want to start a third church, but we can't even handle the second church or this church? You have to get things in proper order. If all we do is focus on our strengths and we don't look at where we're falling apart, which is what I'm saying is your assignment for next year, you're not going to be able to have success. God will only grace you for the last thing he told you to do. We must figure out the things we're fighting. We don't get to hit pause on the Philistines and pause on the Amalekites and pause on the Hittites and pause on the Gittites. We have to tackle the thing God gave us to do. So come over here to the New Testament. Let me just exhort you out of this. Read those passages there because there's some wonderful details that we take from the life of David. I did the math and the Philistines stayed in subjection to Israel for over 240 years after that. A Philistine never lifted his weapon or sword against the Israelites until 240 years after David. It might have been 270. When I did the numbers and looked at the genealogy, I said, that's longer than my nation's been around. Can you imagine having peace from an enemy for 200 plus years? Or just flirt with the enemy and let your kids battle them. Or maybe risk your kids becoming enslaved to them. Like if you flirt with pornography, your kids become enslaved to it. You flirt with drinking, like, you know, just wine-bibbing, your kids could become drunkards. You flirt with, like, church harlotry, your kids won't come to church at all. Church harlotry, I mean, you come and go as you please. Some of you are still practicing church attendance. That's not acceptable. You either come to church or you don't. 
But see, they're going to look up to daddy and say, well, daddy doesn't go. Mommy doesn't go. They're not going to want to come. Why should I go if mommy won't come? Well, you know, mommy's a little touched in the head. We don't want you to be touched in the head. What do you mean touched in the head? Well, mommy's special. Well, you say I'm special. You are, but not like that. (laughs) You're the good kind of special. Figure it out. Whatever you flirt with, your kids will be enslaved to. Whatever you flirt with, I should say your kids run the risk of being enslaved to. Amen. So make up for your mind. Are you going to serve God or not? Are you going to be a good example or not? Do you want God to establish your kids and your household like he promised David or not? Because God can promise it, but if you don't obey God, God can't fulfill the promise. David's prayer was, you said, you said, you said, you said, you said. My house, my family, my boy. My house, my family, my boy. Thank you, Lord, for your graciousness. But David could pray that boldness because he said, because tomorrow I'm killing some Philistines. Because the picture's clear what I have to do. I got to obey my God and my calling. Thankfully, we don't murder people today. We have other battles to fight. Amen. Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called. Here is this exhortation. I beseech thee. You and I have to walk worthy of what our calling is. Coming into 2023, what is the appropriate battle? What is the appropriate assignment? What is your calling for 2023? We have the baseline of our Christianity. We pray, read our Bible, go to church. We work our job honorably and admirably. We're to be the best employee our boss has, the best student our professor instructs. That's baseline Christianity. And then we're the best husband or wife we can be and the best parent. But there's always a battle. There's always another Philistine. There's always another Amalekite. There's always another Hittite, another Ammonite. There's always something. What's the enemy this year for you? It's going to be the one you've not tackled yet. Is it sickness? Is it the spirit of infirmity? Is it debt? Is it insecurity? Is it laziness? Is it excuses? Why bother to grow when you haven't mastered what you currently possess? Why bother to take more land when you haven't established the land you already have? Why bother to go further when you haven't established and secured what you currently possess? So sometimes we do it because we, we want to stay busy so we don't have to face the music. Sometimes you've got to get still and see, Lord, all right, before I can go forward, I've got to go back and make sure everything is cleaned up and ready. I've got to make sure I've mastered everything behind me before I can tackle anything else. Wise people get this. They say, I don't want any more till I can. Ma- I don't need any more employees till I can get these three trained. I don't need any more trucks till I get these three fixed. Wise people know how to ebb and flow with stretching and management and stretching and management. We must walk worthy of the calling or the vocation wherewith we're called. We hear vocation as a career, and truly walking with God is a career. It takes work, it takes training, it takes discipline. You've got to beat monotony, you've got to beat boredom because to walk out of vocation. It's the same thing, but it adds up in the end. One last passage here. And let me read you this. What is your calling? What is your vocation? What is your daily assignment? Everything you do daily is adding towards your greater calling. A couple weeks ago, we taught on daily destiny. Everybody wants something, some big sham wow, but if you can't be faithful over the daily thing, you don't ever build up to a big sham wow, a big mansion. I don't, I don't like that term because we're not about that here at this church. You don't build a big career. You don't build a big ministry. You don't build a big destiny being lazy. What is your daily purpose? 
Are we walking out the path of the just? Are we walking out the path of just enough? All of our lives are without a governor switch. Uh, By a governor switch, all your cars can go faster than they really go. They all max out. There's a governor that prohibits them from speeding more than they should. Most cars is like 135 or 155, which is really, I don't even know why it's that high. I think we set our own governor at like 35. We just pretend it's a residential area everywhere we go. And God says, hello, this is the Autobahn. And you can go faster than 35. We put that governor on us. Every one of your lives has maximum potential in Christ. And it does not yet appear what you shall become. But some of you, at your current trajectory, this is what you shall become. Because you're already there. You hit that in 95, and you're going to be there when we bury you in 2035. That's horrible. Some of us, it already does appear what we shall become because we don't want to be anything else. So this is it. That scripture's a lie because it has appeared what I shall become because I'm not putting any more effort in this thing. That's not us. It does not yet appear what we shall become. So we keep chasing Christ and pursuing his kingdom to see what else he'd have us to do. And sometimes as we follow him, he turns around and says, all right, fix these three things, then come find me again. All right, that's the last thing he told me to do. We need to take inventory. What are the last things he assigned us to do that we have failed to do? What have we given up on? What are we just coping with? What are we just numb to? What, we, what, what's the thing that he said, do this? And we're like, yeah, okay. He hasn't told me again in three months, so I guess he doesn't mean it. What's the thing we have to be reminded of a hundred times? That's the vocation wherewith we've been called. And anything greater or more grand than that that we imagine won't be obtained if we don't master this. Just like your boss tells you, I'll give you the promotion, but I need you to go to this training and pass the test. You don't get to get the promotion without going to the training and passing the test and doing the last thing he told you to do. So figure out what that is. If you don't know what your daily assignment is, you'll simply exist from year to year without any purpose. And the the deceptive thing about America is you can live better than the rest of the world and go nowhere. Your life means nothing. So let me conclude with this little story. I've shared it before, but it's a wonderful story. The Scudders uh, used to serve and were under Pastor Butch Dodwhites in Uganda. And Pastor Butch Dodwhites is Kenyan, but was adopted by American missionaries and raised in Uganda. So when Idi Amin began to butcher everybody, the Dodwhites, the seniors, had to escape because they were on Idi Amin's hit list. And then Butch was on the hit list. He was 19 or 20. He had to flee because the, uh, they actually, at their church, there's still brass they find from when Idi Amin's troops shot up their church. There used to be bullet holes in the side of the church. So, so then Pastor Butch had to escape to Southern California. And so he went to college in Southern California. Now, to me, it's still funny because Pastor Butch, when he looks at you, he has his mustache. He's an African, but he sounds like he's from Southern California. But he's Kenyan. He speaks Swahili, but he's Ugandan, but sounds like Southern California. So he goes to Southern California, goes to Bible school in the early 70s. Late 
late 70s, early 80s. Goes to Bible school, goes to college, and is working at a mobile home factory. And he was telling us this story one night over lamp light in the village because we had just come. No, it was at Sippy Falls. He didn't, he couldn't, he doesn't, he has, he has some health issues. He couldn't hike with us. So we hiked Sippy Falls, which are these gorgeous waterfalls on the western side of Mount Elgon. And as, as Brett and I were, and Gertie was with us, we were hiking up Sippy Falls. Uh, it's the most, one of the most Nat Geo things I've ever done because you're, you're walking through people's property on these little foot trails and you're at 7,000, 8,000 feet. They live up there and they have plots of land smaller than a third of this sanctuary and they have their house there and everything around it is just crops. It's all volcanic ash, so it's very rich. And I saw for the first time in my life subsistence farming. So these people, these Ugandans, they wake up in the morning to cultivate their corn, or really it was coffee and bananas, I think. Coffee and bananas. They don't want to eat bananas every day. They don't want to drink that much coffee, but that's their cash crop. So they wake up every morning to maintain that crop, to take it down a couple thousand feet in elevation to sell at the market so they can have some extra money, so they can have lamp oil, maybe batteries for their radio, or maybe some uh, minutes for their cell phone, and maybe more seed or some other products, and they go back up to their house to have something to eat so they can go to bed on a full stomach so they can wake up the next morning to care for their crops so they have something to sell to have a little bit extra money so they can go to bed on a full stomach to wake up the next morning and do it all over again. That's subsistence farming. You wake up every day simply to exist another day. It's how civilization has developed for 6,000 years. So I really had an epiphany of this. So we came down off the mountain, Pastor Butch. We're sitting on that really cool balcony thing overlooking the valley drinking African tea. And I'm telling this, Pastor Butch, this epiphany of subsistence farming. So then he starts telling us about escaping to Southern California so Idi Amin didn't kill him, or Idi Amin's troops. And he talks about graduating and working at a mobile home factory. And he said, one day at the mobile home factory, a man retired. They had a celebration. He'd worked at the mobile home factory 30 years. And they gave him a watch, 30th anniversary watch or whatever, and a celebration. And so he looked at this man and he said, 30 years. Yeah. Wow. 30 years at the same job. Yeah. What do you have to show for your life? What do you have to show for 30 years? He said, well, I got a watch. And Pastor Butch said, I said in my heart, I will not live and die like this. I will return to Uganda and finish my father's ministry. And he told me, he said, that is subsistence farming to get up, to go to work, to have a paycheck, to come home for the weekend, to have some time off, to get up Monday, to go to work, to have a paycheck, to go home for the weekend, to get up, that's subsistence farming. It's just America style. Our life is more than that. If you don't work, you don't eat, yes. But our life is more than working for a company all of our life and not ever building the kingdom, not ever advancing the kingdom, not ever having uh, pioneering victory in our personal lives, not setting up our kids to go further. It's possible to live in 21st century America with all the wealth and still be a bush farmer. Except instead of corn and bananas, we do it for a paycheck. It's no way to live and our life is worth more than that. This doesn't mean go quit your job. 
This doesn't mean your job is evil or being faithful is evil. This is change your mindset because our life is important. So figure out what the proper assignment is for 2023. What will you accomplish by the end of next year? Will your life be any different or will you just have paychecks and pay stubs? Your life ought to be able to say, I accomplished something more for God. I went somewhere for, I got a new career. I got a promotion. I was able to take a mission trip. I started funding this missionary. I wrote a song, started hosting a Bible study. I got the victory over this sin. I led my mama to the Lord, whatever it may be. There ought to be something to show for more than year, this year than just pay stubs. Don't be a subsistence farmer in this nation. Amen.